Let's go. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, March 11th. I'm your host for the next few minutes, Marquis Sahota, before I hand it off to the one and only uh, community member, Mark Freeman. Super excited to have Mark take over the reins today. Uh, just a quick shout out uh, for y'all. Release an episode today on the podcast with Brent Dykes. This one's all about storytelling, data storytelling. So please do check out that episode. I think uh, I think you guys are gonna learn a lot from it. Uh, we had a lot of great episodes drop like this this month in in general. Last week had one with Fabrice Mesador just talking about how he broke into into data science. Um, did one with uh, with Justin Wynn. We're talking about uh, well, Justin Wynn is the guy that does the uh, Declassified College podcast. Did a couple of uh, other podcast episodes with Liz Fosling, uh, co-author of No Hard Feelings, and another one with Alyssa uh, simpson Roshworker. So definitely lots of great episodes to check out on the podcast. If you have not yet checked them out, please do. But the newest one is with Brent Dykes. Also, huge shout out to uh, everyone who supported with, uh, with the Buy Me a Coffee initiative that I set up to kind of help, uh, help kind of get stuff back up and running. Um, you know, shout out to Matt Diamond, Russell Willis, Russell Willis with the massive support. Russell, that was uh, incredible, man. Thank you so much for that love. Uh, Shuebe also hooked it up as well. You guys, thank you so much for your support and uh, kind of helped me get back up and running while we figured out this stuff with the uh, with the with the basement and the insurance and all that stuff. Uh, you guys' support is much appreciated so thank you so much if you guys want to help out there is always a link right in every podcast episode uh to a buy me a coffee thing go ahead check it out uh whatever you can to help i'm going to use that stuff to buy me a new microphone first and foremost and some headphones so that uh, the quality is good um other than that man i'm gonna sit back for just a couple minutes because i miss all of y'all so i'm gonna i'm gonna chill but I'm handing the reins over to Mark, who will be your host for the rest of this evening. Mark, thank you so much, man, for uh, for taking over. I appreciate you stepping up and, and helping out, man. Of course. So what's good, everyone? Mark Freeman. Um, <laughs> if you've shown up here, you probably see me quite a bit because uh, I come here almost weekly. But, uh, you know, opportunity to help out Harpreet. Anytime that pops up, I'd love to. He's done so much for my career in this space. Um, so always happy to be here and support whenever I can. Also hang out with these lovely data folks and data nerds and also seeing people on the LinkedIn. Um, shout out Sarah Magram celebrating that you got a second interview. How amazing. So I will be peeping the LinkedIn uh, if you have questions over there. And if we have questions here, you know, happy to have that conversation. And so to kind of kick us off first, one of my first questions, I put out a post today on LinkedIn um, asking about what's your data dream team? Um, you know, many times there's a lot of data initiatives where companies like, we need data. You know, we need to have all these initiatives. And then they hire someone and it kind of goes wrong. So, you know, what if you had kind of control, you know, what data dream team you would want to have as maybe a, as a leader? Or if you're someone new and you're trying to think, you know, what type of person I want to be on a new team, you know, what would that dream team be for you? Um, for me personally, I said first would be data analyst, then data engineer, and then data scientist finally. But um, there was some debate in the comments. So I'm curious what others have to say and their perspectives. And so to kind of kick it off, I'm, I'm just gonna go with the easy ask. Uh, Vin, you know, what are your thoughts, you know, since you've built teams before? 
So start off, um, Mark Cuban leading the team uh, and and funding it. So sponsored by Mark Cuban. Um, if I could get Jadea Pearl to head everything up as far as the research side of things, I would go with that, uh, definitely. Andrew Ng, you, you got to have him. He's the one who's going to be doing, you know, data literacy and education throughout the organization. So I'm bringing him in. But you can hear, like, I'm calling out these roles that nobody talks about. You know, I'm talking about somebody who's going to be saying yes to innovation. Because if you don't have that person, you're done. I mean, just pack it up. Why well, have a team? If you don't have someone who's going to run the educational side of things, who's going to not only teach the team and grow and mentor the team, but also the rest of the organization, then you're in trouble there too. And if you don't have someone who knows how to run research, somebody that has an academic background, but has also like made money with research, again, you're set up to fail. And so when we talk about all of these roles within the team, we always forget the ones outside. And there's all these other pieces that need to be in place or your data scientist just kind of shows up and goes, where's the data? And even if there's a ton of it, it doesn't matter. You know, your data engineer is like, all right, I'm going to start gathering data. Why? What are we gathering data for? And so, you know, you need your data engineer, you need your data scientist, you need a machine learning engineer, you need somebody on ML ops, you need a product manager, but then you also need all of these connections to the business. You need to figure out a way to scale, a way to grow. And the more I think about it, you know, trying to bring in one or two people to kick things off, I don't know if that can work anymore. Like when I first started, it was, you know, solo. I, I was the data science team, but like in 2014, data science was really easy. It was kind of over-glorified analytics and big data really wasn't as big as it is now. And the field isn't as broad. So I'm wondering, I, I just don't think you can do it with one or two people. I think you need to, I mean, you need the analytics foundation. You need the data foundation first. So if you don't have that, obviously get there, but you almost immediately from there take the full plunge and go off the cliff, not, you know, down the stairs. So I, I would actually want, want to follow up on that, on that kind of statement is, you know, you're saying it's re requiring a team um, that requires a huge investment, um, you know, to, to have that. So, you know, people can really kind of say like, Hey, you know, we can hire a couple people for headcount, but to have a full department, um, that's a huge ask how how does someone kind of make that buy-in for leadership to actually set aside the budget to even do so? Because that's a huge risk. That's Mark Cuban. That's, that was that first person that I said to bring in because if the team's not working towards something innovative, if the team's not working towards building things that will generate significant revenue, because free cash flow right now is hard to find. Companies are struggling for key, free cash flow and they're getting punished. If you do like long-term guidance where you say, well, you know, I'm going to have to guide down a little bit. Your stock price goes down 20%. It's wild. I mean, tech right now, the valuations are getting pummeled. And so this is the dilemma. If you can't have someone who has that long-term vision, who's willing to, and you know, Satya Nadella is another great example of this, of someone who can come in and explain, look, we're all in and here's why, because this is the, the revenue stream of the future. Here's why we're putting all this cash in and doing it the right way. Because if you look at the way Microsoft tried to get into cloud, you know, they did it sideways and they didn't put a whole lot of effort into it. And Azure was kind of a train wreck to begin with. And then you had Della take over and he basically said that, like, I'm all in on cloud. And so as a company, even as a small company, if you're getting into data science, 
you have to have someone who has the vision, who understands not only how the product is going to work, but really how the business has to transform in order to support it. And you have to have this concept of revenue, like crazy amounts of revenue, not just over the next six months, but looking out five, six years. If you don't have that sort of a vision, if you don't have that Mark Cuban type or the Satya Nadella type, you're in a lot of trouble because that investment, you're totally right. There's no way to justify all. Of, and we haven't even talked about like the infrastructure money. We've been talking about all of that transformation that costs money and you have to bring in leadership and expertise. There's a lot to be done. If you don't have that revenue stream, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, there's just no way for the business to justify everything you have to do. You end up going halfway and you lose more money because you're spending still, you know, two, three people and the infrastructure over the course of a couple of years, it's a lot of money. And if you don't get returns, then you're just sinking three years of time or two years of time and all that cash. Awesome. Um, I just want to quickly, before I ask other people questions, if anyone else has thoughts on uh, this question of this, this data dream team. I think sometimes people overlook that. Sometimes the, the talent already exists there. They're just not, um, they're not given the mandate or the space to like do the good work that needs to be done. Like we have this kind of experience on, on my team where we like went through this massive change in the company. And before that, you know, a lot of work was definitely valuable. I, I'm, never, I'm not gonna say the work was never valuable, but it did feel sometimes like we were spinning our wheels um, on like fighting mini fires as opposed to building like more of a fireproof house. Um, and, you know, there was, a, there, there was a big shakeout. We lost a lot of people it forced the company or like at least the company and also the org to really kind of rethink how we were spending time. So the first thing that happened was we cut out unnecessary projects. Then we said, okay, we're going to really clarify the working direction of our team. And we're going to, and by we, I mean, like my, my manager was a, a big part of this and advocating to our director, you know, saying like, we have good people here. Uh, we obviously want to keep them, but more importantly, you know, being good service people is not enabling us to actually do work that's impactful. Like in some ways being the golden retriever is just like, it, it, it wasn't serving the business or our data scientists. And so she did a lot of work in advocating um, both for, or, you know, the executives above, um, but also getting input from us too on like sort of what we wanted as a team. And so sometimes there's a lot of like unlocked talent that's already there, um, but, you still need, like you somehow, like there needs to be some kind of change. And unfortunately, a lot of times that transformational change either comes from like bringing someone external in, or it comes from like a crisis point, you know, where then people are like, oh yeah, like, you know, we need to do it. And sometimes it's like people know they, they should have done, been doing things a better way, but they just, they just like need an excuse like, oh, like we lost half our people. So now we can't do things the same. Cause it's like, well, that work was always kind of low value. so. If it could just kind of get tossed out the window, then why were we ever doing that work? But, um, you know, so I think that's something to kind of think about too, like just to, just to play devil's advocate. Um, but, you know, like I would love to have a Mark Cuban, right? I mean, who else is, who is, who else is going to rep better than Mark Cuban? So oh, b- before I bounce out and, uh, and, and give Mark full reins, uh, 
I'm wondering how much the maturity of the like you know data maturity of the organization would impact the starting lineup of that data team, right? So I've been like the founding member of a data team like twice, and both times the zero you know data maturity, and it's been uh, the both times are extremely painful, uh, and you know I, I'm wondering how that changes some people's responses. But I think either way, I think one of the first hires, if not the first one, should be like a data savvy product manager who's already maybe familiar with the company or who's already internal to the company who can really advocate for some of the work that the other people might need to do. Um, and then definitely, I think without a doubt, the second hire needs to be like a data engineer because data scientists, data analysts, we're end users of data, right? Or like an analytics engineer, you know, one of those hybrids because without that infrastructure in place, like we can't get work done efficiently or effectively. Um, I, I, I'm going to catch up on the discussions and and, and uh, here I goes, but uh, I'm interested to see see some uh, responses to that. And I, I totally agree with uh, Vin's statement to clone Greg. If we can just all clone Greg, we'd all be set in our data careers. Um, and also just a quick reminder too, if you have any questions, please uh, message me in the chat or put in link, LinkedIn and I'll put you in the queue. Um, and so we'll go with Russell first uh, for your response. Thanks, Ma. Um, yeah, so I think great input um, already. Uh, I think Vin's comments were on the mark for organizations that are large have a big war chest or um, budget and have a lot of bandwidth of uh, workforce that they can allocate to the problem. But say for a, a very young organization that's, you know, in barely in the double figures uh, for the organization, I think Harpreet's um, comments are more appropriate for that size. And whether it be a data savvy um, product manager or a, a business savvy data person, I think there's, um, there's a threshold there that you know, with a with a good crossover of uh, say a middle fifty percent that could go either way. Uh, but yeah, the scale of the organisation is a significant um, criteria for making that decision. Uh, and as far as um, data maturity in the organisations go, I think that's also a big thing. You know, if uh, especially if it's a large organisation, if there has been ingrained paradigms and habits of doing things a certain way, trying to break those and take them down a structured, data-driven, data-enlightened approach. There can be an awful lot of inertia to break that direction and move you out of that rut. Uh, and that can be quite a painful process. But as soon as you start to move out, you know, as soon as you redirect um, that inertia, uh, it, it gets easier. Every, every increment that you take towards a new direction gets easier. So there's a lot of um, whilst it sounds like a simple question, there's actually a lot of um, uh, uh, permutations to that. Uh, but I, I liked your approach with the with the analyst first and the engineer for the for the um, the low scale early stuff. But you know, uh, for a big operation, perhaps the engineer first. Did, and it also depends how much data is available uh, at the outset. So not just the quality, but the uh, the quantity of data available also. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> we'll go over to you, um, Kasab. So, I mean, this this kind of throws back to well, what Harpreet was saying and kind of also throws back to a couple of the videos, Vin, that you posted on your YouTube channel, uh, was it maybe a year ago, right? How do you get buy-in from a company? 
right? That's the biggest thing. You need buy-in from, from leadership. If they're not seeing the value in it, they're not investing the money in it. If they're not investing the money in it, you're not going to get a team up and running to do some serious work, right? It doesn't matter how good you are. There is a physical and real limit to how much impact you have on a huge organization from a data perspective, right, as an individual. Uh, eventually, you're going to need a team around you, including data engineers, including infrastructure that can help you sort, you know, everything out that you need to host models and train models to sort out your data. Um, so how do you get that buy-in? Do the people at the top actually understand the value of the data that they're sitting on? Do they understand the cleanliness of the data that they're sitting on, the potential business uh, impact that it can have? If they don't understand that, no, you're not going to be able to convince them to put together a full team, right? And that's where it takes, uh, you know, experienced uh, data scientists. And, and maybe this is this is where I started believing in consulting, machine learning and data science as a consulting thing. Um, too many times a company might say, oh, yes, we need machine learning. Oh, yes, we need data science, right? Let's do it. But then in order to do it internally, you maybe have one person who's, they're in the company as a VP for like, you know, six months before they move on to their next big career move. And they want to say that they led a data science initiative. So they hire two data scientists, put them in the shit, give them pretty much nothing and then watch it flail. It's, it's, it survives long enough for them to put it on a resume and move on, but it doesn't have any real impact, right? And you see it a billion bloody times. I'm sorry, language, but geez, you see it all the time, right? Um, uh, Cut to the chase. That's when you need a consultant to come in and give you that significant expertise at a management level, at a C-suite level, to say, hey, this is the data you're sitting on. Here's the value. Build the business case. If you can build the business case, I can guarantee pretty much any C-suite or executive team is going to sit up and take notice. Until you can build the business case, they don't give a damn. And fair enough to them, right? Um, so, yeah, that, what do you need to build the business case to give you that full team? That's how you get buy-in. Great. And I'm new to this hosting stuff. So I'm trying to figure out how to get back into regular view because I, I put you on spotlight and now it's not coming off. So we all learning together here. Uh, it's great. All right. We're back now. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, in my, my original post, I uh, initially said that I think the data analyst should be the first hire, but after hearing Vin's kind of a talk about how it should be not individual hires or a whole team, that's, that definitely changes my perspective. But I would caveat is that I still think that data analysts should be a first hire and not for a full initiative for, for data science, but as someone to start building that use case in the data to have that report to bring to leadership. Um, and so, you know, I'll oh, go ahead. Can I ask, is that what you'd consider a first hire or is that what you'd uh, go to a consultant for? Because you could achieve the same thing with a consultant right? Which gives you that short-term ability to experiment to figure out, hey, what's the potential value in here, right? And then you figure out, okay, now we're going to create a data science team internally. Then you already know the value, you know the, the gap. So the consultant can give you an analysis, okay, here's your infrastructure gap, here's your uh, engineering setup gap, right? Then you start going, okay, now I need the engineers in place to build the foundational platform that can let our model builders or data scientists come in and actually data analysts come in and make real value, right? Because too many times you see companies that have hired a data analyst or a data scientist first, they build great models on poor foundational data structures, poor foundational, uh, you know, um, 
data engineering flows, workflows, ETL, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, too many times you see that foundational bit just missing. And then it takes a couple of years of that. And then it's just not really giving the real-time benefits to say, okay, crap, we need a full data engineering team to flesh out that. And then, and then you go through the situation where you've got these janky models that have been deployed for like a year. And then the whole company has got to take this big initiative to refactor the whole damn thing, right? Um, so it's funny that you bring that up because one of the, one of the commenters on my posts said exactly that. And they, they had the background to back it up as well to say like, I've jumped into multiple teams where the data analyst was hired first and they, they created this a lot of technical debt. And then they had to, um, she had to come in and fix everything, right? Um, and I actually, I, I agree with that. And so I just wanna posit like, you know, potentially, and I hear the, hear the argument like, you know, why hire a data analyst when you can hire a consultant? Um, and I think the big thing too is like this buy-in component. Um, and so again, I think I should probably reference the other consultants or people who have hired consultants. When a consultant comes in, how hard is it for when they give their recommendation for the whole org to accept it and want to, to move forward with it? Um, you know, I think there are some wins with that, but I feel like someone who's within the org and who's working with those, those people building that rapport over a long term can start getting to those real questions that a, a consultant jumping in, jumping out may necessarily not be able to do. I think consultants are amazing. <laughs> I think that, you know, for the right case, um, we have some consultants here. Um, but, uh, you know, that's that's the argument I'm making is that there's this long-term rapport and they're starting to build up this case. And um, the data analyst is more so, instead of trying to build this infrastructure, they're more tactical of like, where are the high, where are the low-hanging fruit to make people start caring. I think the data analyst is rather than being an actual like infrastructure huge piece, they're more a catalyst to actually get the data, the company be like, oh, actually this data thing is actually really cool. We should start paying attention and, oh, I want more data, but we have all these pain points, right? And then I think it'll be worthwhile to kind of bring in the consultant, but I'm open to any like pushback on this as well. Um, and I think you have some thoughts. 100%, I've got some thoughts on this one. All right, so two questions. This sounds like a different problem, right? So if you're hiring a consultant and you're not willing to take their feedback seriously, A, have you hired a consultant that you trust, right? In the sense that, have you hired someone who's actually good enough that you say, okay, this person, I'd take them seriously, right? If you haven't done that, you've just wasted your money anyway. You know, you got a $10 consultant out of five or something and you don't trust their response. That's on you. You can get what you pay for, right? Don't do that. Secondly, if you do go with a consultant that's bloody good and knows what they're talking about and that you trust and you've paid tens of thousands of dollars for them to investigate this and give you a serious report, why are you not willing to back that? Why are you not receptive to their, their feedback, right? Now, trust me, I'm, I'm a person who's like in-house. I trust the in-house because we have the value stream built in, right? That makes sense from a product. That makes sense from a long-lived investment in a product. But that consultant piece, if you're going to use it right, use it right. Like actually have that investment in understanding what are you hiring, who are you hiring, and how does that add value to you, right? If you're going to pay tens of thousands of dollars, it's, it's on you as an executive to make sure that there's follow-through on that, right? But playing the devil's advocate here, right? Are we then optimize? Let, let's say um, I want to flip my logic on hire the hire a consultant, then hire the engineer first, and the data data analyst, right? 
let's take it from the perspective of like, that works for a large company who can afford really high quality consultants and then who can afford to build out an engineering team because they're sure of the return on investment in say two years time. Let's take a small team that doesn't have the financial backup to do all of that upfront investment, right? What if you can get a data analyst or a data scientist in to prove the model in, in the real world and you go through this cyclical pattern where your first models are going to be janky and crap and there's no infrastructure that's properly done for it. And then as you go, you've got to cyclically keep adapting it and improving it and improving it. So is that necessarily a wrong way of doing data science? It might not be the gold standard from scratch, but you might be able to build to that, right? And is there a use case for going one way or the other based on literally how much upfront capital you can, you can throw into it? Love this. Love this. Uh, definitely expanding my perspective on this. And I appreciate you sharing. Um, let's go to Mikiko. Um, you have your hand raised. All right. I was looking at the thread and then it someone was like, dress for the job that you want. And I remember this one, not at all relevant, but it was hilarious. There was these two guys at this one startup where they were constantly razzing each other. This one guy shows up, talks some more, you know, nonsense. The other guy and the other guy is like, you know, that whole dress for the job that you want. Because right now you're dressed like um, an absent father that just gambled away the family savings in Vegas. And it was hilarious. Um, you need to see a picture and you're like, oh, yeah, that is what that would look like. Um, no, but I guess like, I mean, do you think the kind of one problem though, like in this whole discussion is like, like we're making certain assumptions, right? Like in some ways we're almost making an assumption that a business is like totally data illiterate. <laughs> and they're 100% starting from scratch. And in some ways they are small enough uh, that they can like, you know, adjust to the feedback. And at the same time, they're big enough that they actually have money and resources. <laughs> so it feels like in this kind of discussion, we're, we're talking about like in some ways, um, like the perfect consulting opportunity as opposed to the reality of probably what a lot of companies look like, um, I guess. Like, so I don't know. Like, I'd actually be I'd, I'd be curious to hear like Matt, Matt, Matt's take on this because I feel like um, there's a lot of cases where first off nowadays companies are not starting from scratch, right? Um, at least their ICs are not. Sometimes the leadership doesn't always keep up to date, but um, you know, a lot of companies are not necessarily starting from scratch. Like, they do have something, especially if they're in the enterprise space, that enterprise space. A lot of startups sometimes they're a little bit too new to actually have the data to do anything with um and then also too like there's still this kind of like trust factor um of the whole um like when you hire a consultant a sometimes people who are incentivized to do differently will not take the consultant's advice even as good and well-meaning as it is and that's why sometimes you do need someone to prove like someone needs to literally go we are losing like a million dollars a year if we don't do this, or there's a market opportunity cost of 5 million, if we do do this. So a lot of times that kind of analysis, that kind of like business proving doesn't come up until someone internally has done the analysis, because a lot of times companies will not willingly open like the vault of their data to an external party. And if they do, they have to sign a bunch of NDAs. So I don't know, but like, I, I, I do kind of feel like in some ways, like a lot of the advice of like kind of who we would hire I do think it is very specific to that company and like where that team is at, like at that point in time. Um, but yeah, that's just like my two cents. Awesome. Let's uh, go to Matt. Let's see. Uh, Mikiko has high high praise for your your thoughts here, Matt. No pressure. 
hopefully I can find the mute button. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I think what Nikiko was saying was kind of what was playing around my head a lot at the very beginning is like, you know, who is the first hire is is really kind of dependent on the company, you know, and we were making lots of assumptions, but like, you know, it's really not a matter of who the first hire should be, but like when you should make your first hire because so like when I was became a data scientist after about two years, I started looking around. So like I was interviewing probably like once a month for like two years in kind of Utah area and Utah had a ton of startups and like data science was this new thing and everyone wanted to do it. But like all of these startups had no idea what they were doing with data, right? Like essentially they're just selling stuff online, you know, just websites, right? And like really a lot of the stuff that people need don't necessarily need a data team for. And so, yeah, it, it really just comes down to, you know, like I got really far in most of those interviews and ended up turning several of them down just because, you know, the company wasn't ready for really that investment into data because they didn't have the data, right? So like really before any team happens, like you need a company that actually has the data and the needs. And yes, I mean, every company has, you know, they have, you know, they need to understand sales data and market data and other things like that. But a lot of that can just be done, you know, with business intelligence. And so I guess maybe that, um, yeah, a data analyst is all you need at first, but, you know, a data engineer to set up, you know, Domo or Tableau or whatever is also really useful, but like, can I kind of get a team together to handle a lot of those needs? Awesome. And I know, uh, Russell, what, what are your thoughts on this? You have your hand raised as well. Yeah, so I've got a couple of um, responses uh, from the comments since I last spoke, and one thing that I forgot to say uh, the last time. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think I agree well with Matt there. You know, the timing of the hires is very important. You know, so, so hire someone rather than wait six to 12 months to decide who you should hire first. At least hire someone and start the journey, even if it's the... Uh, even if it's a suboptimal hire, i.e. you've not hired the right person, so you've gone for the data scientist first rather than the data analyst or the data engineer, who, whoever is optimal for the situation. At least having some hire and starting somewhere is better than doing nothing. Uh, but the, the key bit that I missed out saying the last time was uh, I think someone like a, a data landscape or a data ecosystem architect, someone that understands the entire topology of the ecosystem or the landscape is really key because then they can understand the maturity. They can let you know, you know, you're actually quite mature. You could go straight for the data analyst or the data scientist here, uh, or maybe you want to start with a data engineer first, or maybe go for two, you know? So there's good um, insight that can come from that, but that role is essential for the, for the longevity and the, and the quality of the data team for its entire life cycle, basically, because that's going to be the gel, the catalyst that, that brings all of the streams of, of data work together, you know, to make, to make sure the analysts work well with the data engineers and the data scientists, et cetera. Uh, and then lastly, if we are 
then talking in realms of large organisations as well, that architects, that oversight of the entire data landscape is quite key because it's possible that you'll have different elements or different parts of the business start some work with data analysis separately from the others, little microcosms of data analysis. And they might start with completely different methods, different strategies, different structures, etc. And when they get mature enough to want to consolidate those, they may be um, incompatible. So having that oversight and understanding of the entire landscape at the start is really um, an optimal place to be. May not be, <coughs> excuse me, may not be the, the best um, option for you if you're limited on budget, but if you can do it, I, I think that's a really key hire to make first. So will that be like a kind of like a solutions architect who understands kind of like this larger, larger piece? Yeah, I, I guess so, but I'm, also, I'm labels are needed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> excuse me again. I'm talking about this in, in the realms of data only. You know, so you've got architects throughout the business. You've got software architects, um, uh, solutions architects, uh, and everything. But I, I think it's important to have one for data as well. And then those architects can have their own steering group as well so that they meet um, regularly to make sure that the the overall structure of everything in the organizational ecosystem is also working at the same kind of synchronicity and and there's nothing is going to you know throw a throw a, a wrench in the uh, in the works as it were you know you bring that up and that's actually been something that's been very top of mind because um in, in the organization i'm in we've built up a lot of trust through our work from the engineering team where they're trying to get more hands off and letting us kind of build more so we can move a lot faster and something that's been really top of mind is like, great, we have a lot of this freedom. We can finally move forward with things you want to do. But how do I prevent us kind of come, coming like a tale of two worlds where I totally butcher things, tale of two cities, wherever it is. But two different groups, two different systems where they all of a sudden now that connection between the two becomes a bottleneck because we're not we're not communicating with each other. So I, I think that's a really interesting point because that um, it's not happening right now, but I want to prevent it. Because uh, I am taking a lot of lead on kind of this data infrastructure side of things, at least from the data science perspective, rather from the engineering perspective. Um, and it's, it's challenging because many times we don't speak the same language. So trying to translate between data scientists and engineers, uh, it's been a common theme uh, whenever I show up this week is just how do I talk to engineers? Y'all are weird, but we're weird too. So we're just weird in different ways. <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, stop. Uh, so I guess this is kind of extending on what Russell was saying is uh, what's the definition of done for a, for a data scientist or, a, or a, a data transformation, right? Is it that, hey, we've built models on the data and they run? Um, is that, does that mean we're done here? We've hired someone to build some models. Um, how do you understand that as a business, right? What's the actual requirement for your business to actually see the value that the data holds and its potential value, right? And this is where someone with that significant architectural understanding, that lay of the land of knowing, okay, what's the infrastructural requirements for this? What are the, you know, how can we actually consolidate the data across the whole business? Understanding that topology is quite, that, that's quite key. So having that kind of person there is important. And I mean, yeah, it speaks to what Mikiko said as well in the sense that not every company is completely immature and doesn't know anything and are looking for, please teach me, right? Um, 
like there are a lot of companies that are quite a way like quite a ways along in their journey um how do you how do you start by understanding is sorry how do you start understanding all the pieces that actually need to fit you need that kind of uh significant architect overview of here are the platforms you're using here's all the different variations in your data right um really establishing that definition of done is important otherwise i mean i've seen situations where uh, especially at like a c suite level or a senior management level it's like oh yeah we got the guy to do the model right that was done isn't that the data science initiative awesome and it kind of stops there <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that's a good question. I like I like uh, uh, Russell's kind of point is that the data work is never done. Oh, so true. Uh, the moment that you release data or a model into the wild, it begins to like decay. Um, so constantly, constantly uh, hurting hurting cats to make sure or, or your data acts nice. Um, Makiko, you have some additional thoughts. I do feel like that's something that in the early days of a project is something that kind of needs to be identified in scope is like, what does success look like? Um, you know, cause like for some people, success is a POC. Whereas for others, it's like success is the model is deployed. We have tested it and it's like rolled out in the product. Um, and I do kind of feel like sometimes like, and this, this is a little bit hard. So when a project has like a clear, like product initiative or a product owner, um, it, is a lot easier to say like what is done at that point because the goal is getting into the product, right? But a lot of times, a lot of times projects are sort of like, so, for, so not all of times, but for projects that are self-initiated um, by like a data scientist or, or, you know, just anyone, by an IC, right? Um, a lot of times I do kind of feel like it is motivated a little bit by like shiny tool syndrome, which is, oh, look, GP3 came out. Let's see, let's, let's figure out a way that we can use it. Um, you know, and at that point, there's usually a lot less of uh, a good business explanation for why someone wants support. But at the same time, a lot of the coolest products that we have nowadays, right? Like, for example, a lot of like Google's cool products, they were sort of developed during 20% time. Um, so I think there just needs to be kind of like a clear grounding and understanding of kind of, you know, especially like if you have a project, for example, that doesn't have a product owner, or even if it does have a product owner, it should still tie to some kind of like strategic, it, it, there should be alignment to the strategic goals, right? Um, but I do think that's like, that's, I feel like if you had to like ask like five key questions when you're first getting started with a data science project, like, and sort of, you know, like to make sure that's successful, I would say the first one is literally like, what is the, out, what is the output? Is it like an API endpoint? Is it a container that we deploy to like, you know, GCP or some other or AWS or whatever their solution is, um, you know, like what is like the data requirements? Because if you don't have the data and there's just no way to get it, then we shouldn't even be like talking about the project. Who's like owning it? Like once it's like once it's been like everyone can agree on who owns it when it's developed. I feel like the the kind of arguments come up when the model's deployed. So it's like who is owning the maintenance and the operational aspects of that model. So if it breaks, like is the data scientist doing like, like pushing the new updates or is it like the other one here or, or whatever? Um, like having that racy chart, I feel like is so, so important. Um, and then also to like having a deadline. Um, and the way I look at it is like, if you don't have a deadline, then it's probably not important to the business. Um, Cause that's, that's, that's honestly where you get like, to me, it's the most annoying thing to like, see like, 
the business partners come back and be like, oh, we need this in a month. And I'm like, I I'm sorry, like, you know, uh, I'm not here to pay for the fact that you weren't on your, on your schnaz, you know, you weren't doing your business and like letting us know like where the project was going. Um, but at the same time, that's also a way that you can then sort of extort some, sorry, um, you can get some good kudos for the future. So, you know, maybe around promotion time, just everyone should have that promotion notebook, that packet, right? Just go do a little line on this day, this PM screwed me over and I, no, um, <laughs> and I saved the project. Um, <laughs> right, everyone has a brag book. So that's sometimes, some things are worth like owning and then you put in the brag book and other times it's it's not worth putting it down in the brag book. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll move on to, uh, thank, thank you, Makiko, for, for sharing your thoughts. Um, we'll move on to the next question. We have Sarala, who uh, I believe is a new guest for us. Um, you had a question, so I'm super excited to kind of hear what you have to ask. Give a quick moment. <laughs> that moment you take a bathroom break. Yeah, we can, we can go back. Eric, I know you had a question. I did. So... So I've been working on this project and I, I shared it on LinkedIn. It was my like Murphy index, are you, you know, Irish name um, scoring thing. Right. And so Harpreet had an interesting idea. He asked if I was like collecting any of the data and I was trying to think like what I could do that would make it, uh, that would make it worth collecting anything, you know? Um, and uh, and I, one idea that I had was it could be interesting to collect even if I didn't collect the names of the that were submitted, just collecting the scores and to be able to say, you know, for future people, you are in the top 10% or here's what the distribution of scores looks like or something like that, right? So that's kind of the first idea. So my question was from a, what, from a, you know, GCP or AWS, like in terms of that, it's just a Streamlit app right now. And all it does is run the little, calculation um, based on like the pickled data that I have in the uh, in the code. And so what would I need to do to take that and save it somewhere and call it again to be able to like visualize it? What what are the words slash pieces of the platform that I would need in order to set that up? So that's definitely outside my wheelhouse. I think it's more so going to the ML ops side of things you're asking about where to store your models and whatnot so i'm going to look to to makiko who's on this side at least for me um, a residential data engineer that's in the house now mr sharp actually for what would be good data storage solutions um i'm not too familiar with streamlit but okay so it just like, when somebody types their name in it just saves it as a variable and then does stuff with it that's all it's like super simple like, is this running on the cloud or a server? Or what exactly? Anyways, I yeah, like it's it on, really. It's on Streamlit just, Share. Like, it seems like this is just a very simple application that I would probably just save it to a text file and then log into the server and download it. And then, if it's you know not something that is being saved, like it's in some container that's being destroyed, if it's not being used, then, uh, then I'd probably like push it to like just a, a Google Sheets and then go from there and figure out 
maybe how to connect it to something more permanent from there. Um, upload, so, you know, if it saves it to a CSV file, upload it to like S3 or something, some storage, object storage, so. Yeah, GCS would be like the equivalent of S3. So it would still be like appending to like FX file or something. Yeah. Okay, so first grade question to your first to your first grade solution. Uh, <laughs> when you say, oh, just save it to a text file. Like, can you say a little more about that? What that looks like? Is it like, am I going to need to, so it's on, so Streamlit Share just plugs directly into my GitHub repo. And so where does that text file live and how do I connect to it? Or yeah, where does the text file live? I can figure out how to connect to it and do stuff with it, but I don't know where that's stored. So, so I mean, quick note, oh, go ahead. Oh, like you, it could just live in your GitHub, right? So like you can have text files as in, inside of your repo and it could be in, stored as LFS, which will have some limits, but like it can just kind of work together <laughs> until you come up with a better solution. <laughs> So somebody goes, let's say that you go to the app, you type your name in sharp. So it's going to grab that and then push it to like, it's going to, when you load it, it's going to like pull the text file or pull the repo or something, update the text file and then push it back. Yeah. So when, if, when you store, if you store a file in GitHub with LFS, large file storage, it is your GitHub repo is literally just saving um, essentially a URL and pointing to the storage. And that file okay. is being stored in, in some cloud storage similar to S3 oh. in the back end. And so then you can just constantly update the actual file. And then inside the GitHub, it'll just keep on pointing to that source since it's just a pointer. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. I didn't know LFS was a well, I didn't know it was a thing and then um until five seconds ago. And then I didn't realize yeah. it was like a separate <laughs> thing. So this is good. <clears throat> okay, cool. That's really helpful. I can Yeah, and honestly, this might be like a terrible solution overall, but it's it's just like I have no idea what you're working in. So this is just throwing out ideas. So also it real quick, shout out shout out to LinkedIn. Paul Fentress is saying that. Streamlit has a Streamlit cloud option to save your data. So I tagged you in there. So you might want to check Thank that you. out. There may be something already pre-built within Streamlit to make your life easier. Oh, that'd be awesome. That must be why they got purchased by Snowflake. I was going to say, that's where they're monetizing. It's the data storage. <laughs> that's what they're going to be. Yeah, that's, that's where the pricing is going to come in. It's like the number of notebooks, instances, and uh, data storage. Ready. Cool. That's helpful. Thank you. Awesome. So let's go back uh, to Sarala. Let's see um, if you're available to uh, ask your question. Hello. Uh, is my voice audible? It is. Oh, yeah. Uh, great. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you, Eric, for uh, sending me an invite to the session. And uh, it was great meeting all of you here and uh, I, I, I'm really happy so that, you know, I, at least I can post my, one of my questions here. Uh, so my question is, uh, 
I am a, a SQL data analyst. Uh, I do anything and everything with SQL. That is what I do daily. Uh, and I'm an occasional uh, Python developer as well. So right now I'm at a phase where I feel that I am kind of stuck in with the SQL and the Python. I, I would like to do more. I'm like, I would like to go beyond SQL and Python analytics. So I, I thought maybe venturing into data science and machine learning would uh, would be the best next option for me. Uh, but then I'm I'm not really sure where to start. Uh, when I look at the the plethora of options that you that we have right now, I mean it feels quite uh, un- overwhelming. And uh, I thought maybe you know I can ask this question and get uh, your inputs on this to see uh, you know what could be the the starting or the very first point that I can start off with uh, for this journey for my journey into ML. Like I'm actually trying to you know uh, build a good uh, profile so that. I can start applying and, you know, make that career transition. So if, if, if you can answer my question, I think I'd be, it would be very grateful. So I'm going to open the floor to anyone who has thoughts on making this transition from being strong in SQL, knowing how to build Python apps, but moving towards a, a more data science uh, side. And I imagine people are probably going to ask more questions first to get more clarification uh, just to learn learn more about your experience. Uh, Gina? Yeah, just real quick, as somebody who's also transitioning to data science, although, um, yeah, I did a boot camp and have been working on other projects. Uh, the fact that you've got Python and SQL is huge because pretty much every single thing I've heard, including from uh, Nick Singh in, in his book and in his interviews, is like Python and SQL. Know these for pretty much any data science interview, right? I mean, just be prepared um, and you'll probably get asked about it. So that's that's thing one. So take heart in that. Okay. And I, I yeah, I, I would echo those. Uh, when you said SQL, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I think like 80% of my job right now is SQL because I use it just to pull the data even do, do the stuff. So you may switch jobs, but you still might might doing a very similar job in, in some kind of way. Uh, Mikiko. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, we have plenty of people on this call, I think, are, are better equipped um, to provide a good answer. But I think I would always sort of ask yourself what you hope to get out of your next career transition, uh, out of your next job. And uh, the reason why I kind of say that is because, you know, it's easy for a lot of us to kind of throw like a list of resources and skills at you. And we all have our own different opinions and, you know, experiences from like our kind of career trajectories. Um, but I think it's important to kind of know your why, um, you know, what kind of projects and what kind of work do you want to be doing? Um, what kind of team are you looking for? Um, the reason why I say this is because, you know, at a couple of the data, data science boot camps I, I sort of mentored at, um, there was a, a portion of, of people for whom uh, they kind of saw moving into data science as sort of like the next step up the ladder. And it is a different type, uh, working as a data scientist is a different type of role. There are skills that, you know, Venn diagram, there are skills that overlap, absolutely. When mm-hmm. you move to data science or when you move to working as a data engineer or an ML ops engineer or what have you, um, there are other skills that you will have to pick up. Um, it, it just, it is what it is. And part of being success, successful is an understanding that gap between what you have now versus like kind of where you need to get to. But it's also like, kind of understanding like your why, what is the type of work you want to be in, what type of products do you want to work on? Because I think the trend nowadays 
is that in a lot of different types of roles, it's kind of expected that people have some experience with machine learning models, like even, even simple ones, um, and have some kind of understanding of it. And so, you know, for some people, like at the students at Bootcamp that I mentored, for them, what they just want, what they wanted was they wanted, um, you know, they want to grow in their career, they want more money, they want, you know, um, wanted to have a more strategic role. And so they learned machine learning, but they learned machine learning to become more senior data analysts who are kind of able to sit at the table to inform on projects. Some people, they, you know, they, they still went into a data scientist role. Um, it was a little bit closer to the way a data scientist role, like a product analytics role is thought of at like some uh, companies like Facebook and Apple and all that. Uh, some people went to more of a research scientist role, but a lot of times the kind of the role that you want to go for and like the skills that you need to then sort of, you know, build up to get to that role, it's dependent on the type of work you want to be doing. So I would always kind of like ask yourself, uh, you know, yeah. understand your why and kind of what you want to get, what would be that. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, and then you can kind of like map the skills a little bit more, more easily. Um, because a lot of our data science, for example, yes, they are building models, but, and this might not be the case at other companies, um, they're building models that will get into production. So they do need to know some engineering skills, but also they're working very closely with product. And so a lot of times they are also developing that kind of like, I don't want to say deep domain knowledge. Like you don't have to know like hundred percent e-commerce to work on e-commerce app. But if you're working on a recommendation app for an item to go into like a cart, it's probably good to just understand like, okay, like this is, you know, like this is the funnel that products go through. These are the metrics that they care about, all the other stuff. So that's just kind of the thing I would sort of put out there. Um, but other people can kind of talk more about the actual process, like Eric Sins, on how do you sort of pivot into become like a really successful, um, you know, successful analyst and partner and um, and Mark too and um, and Matt Sharp here. Um, so we have this out next, but I'm curious because you called out Eric Sims. If Eric, you have any quick thoughts? Um, if not, that's also completely okay as well. A uh, quick couple of quick things uh, related to what Makiko was saying, like just being a cool person to like talk to and and whatever goes along with it and opening up opportunities that you're interested in, um, and then just kind of that list of resources stuff. It's like how do you get involved with it or get started with it? One hackathons, um, because then you can work on somebody else's project that's definitely further down the road than your project that's an empty Jupyter notebook right now, right? That's helpful. Um, and then the other is just like, I try to find things that like are going to happen that helps motivate me, like St. Patrick's Day. It's like, okay, I can do a project about St. Patrick's Day. Halloween, I can do a project about Halloween. And it just makes me think about, like helps me guide my ideas because otherwise I'm just all over the place and I don't know what to do. And and I'm just never going to start. And I just have too many, too many ideas. And so like narrowing it down and just having something and then digging into it, uh, you know, you hit enough roadblocks to like learn, learn lots of stuff along the way. So anyway, that's my quick two cents. I would also add kind of Eric, the putting a holiday next to it also time boxes you. So you're like, I have oh, to yeah. get this done before it's Halloween passes. Because like do a Halloween project on November 5th, that you kind of missed the mark right there. No one's asking <laughs> exactly. you to, you know, kiss me because I'm kiss me, I'm Irish. No one, no one's doing that. Like the, the week after, like St. Patty's Day. Uh-uh. Exactly. 
Vin has other thoughts, but uh, Kasab. Okay, so I mean, I was essentially going to say something similar to what Eric was saying. Where, yeah, sure, everyone's going to tell you to go build a build a portfolio, right? Easy to say, easy to find resources. You can look at every medium article under the sun that says, "Oh, top ten uh, portfolio ideas for a budding data scientist." Right? Go for it. Knock yourself out. You're not going to stand out, right? Pick something that you're deeply passionate about and do a project based on that, right? Nick Singh is a great example of this. I think from his stories, it was the R&B, something to do with R&B music, I think it was. Um, I think it was something along that line, right? Do something you're deeply rap passionate about. Music. It was rap music. Was it rap music? Right, okay. Yeah, so pick something that you're deeply passionate about that's going to set you apart, right? Maybe you're the only person who just did a mad data analytics model on kebab shops all right because kebab shops are great right so like set yourself apart like that's what people are going to look for that's going to say oh well this is this person as opposed to the 100 different resumes that came along that did the same project of you know uh, medium.com's june 2020 article right um set yourself apart but i mean mikiko asked the big question here and i don't think I mean, I don't know if you're willing to or or able to answer that question necessarily right now, but why? Like for me, it's very clear. Why am I in data science slash machine learning? Um, my mission is I want to bring robots to the real world. One of the big four challenges in that is making them sense the real world. So to me, my mission is how do I teach robots to see? That's the bottom line. Everything I do takes me one step closer to that, right? And sometimes I've got to take a sidestep and figure out how cloud ops works to figure out how to run it on robots. But that's my big mission. Do you have an answer to that? I'm really curious to hear, Sarala, if you actually already have a cohesive answer to why. Um, for me, uh, as a child, I was, uh, you know, I was always amused by the fact, uh, like, you know, when I would, you know, scroll through YouTube and see, you know, it would, it would give me the some of the recommended videos, right? Uh, at that time, I I really did not understand the science behind it. Uh, I did not know that it is, you know, there is a device that is tracking all my, uh, you know, the kind of usage and uh, whatever I'm watching and whatever I'm seeing. And and based on that, it is providing me recommendations. It's something that I was not aware uh, at that time. And then gradually, when I actually, you know, started working on my first job, uh, for me, SQL was just like any other subject at, during that time. But after started after I started writing queries and after I started noticing the kind of change it is bringing to the business table because I would uh, you know work with SQL to tell the team okay so this is how your product is working pre market uh, sales and this is how it is working post sales and you know uh, if I am able to bring out such kind of insights through SQL uh, then I wanted to explore uh, you know you know go beyond the SQL and see what exactly I can do with the data that I have uh, if if I have to give you an answer right now it is it is just that I wanted to do uh, and understand greater things uh, with data and for me with the kind of knowledge that I have and the kind of understanding and the perception that I see around I feel that probably uh, you know ML or uh, data science or data engineering would be my would be my you know the very next bet that I can take it on so for me it is always leveraging the data that we have at hand to bring out the best to the uh, to anything that we have around us so that that is my answer and i am actually trying to you know 
try trying to find ways to get there but there is this constant feeling that you know whenever i go and check on the linkedin i see people doing many things but uh, in front of them i feel very uh, little or less i don't know if i can, if i'm putting it right correctly across but yeah i i feel that i i i'm missing the trajectory that i have to you know get it get on to achieve my goals and that's how i once i uh, reached out eric and eric had brought me here so yeah So I Can I, I just say a quick some... thing about LinkedIn. Oh, go ahead. Okay, so I love LinkedIn, total LinkedIn junkie. But one thing I will say is like I can't I can't let myself read too much into so many things that people post because when I post something that is like something that I learned or something I'm stoked about, like I learned some stuff, some really interesting stuff about like compliment naive base. But if I write a post about that, ain't nobody going to see it, ain't nobody going to like it, ain't nobody going to care. But it, it's like something that actually matters professionally and can actually be useful to me. But if I get a certificate or 100% on who knows what quiz, you know, that's just going to like light it up and make it look like, oh, so awesome. So like, you know, grains of salt, take them um as needed, as many as needed whenever they're needed. So Can I just chime exactly in there? I'm I'm just going to chime in there. I I'm a serial I don't post on LinkedIn kind of person, right? I will like, I will comment on other people's posts, but I am always dead scared to post what I've learned this week because what I've learned this week makes sense to me as shit, that's cool. I needed that for my personal development, right? And that's big for me, right? And it might be something super basic to everybody else and I'm sitting there going, if I share this, people are going to be like, "Oh, is that all he's learning?" kind of thing because you only ever see the like You only ever see these people that are like, oh, I finished this entire Kaggle competition, got a medal in it, I did this massive thing, right? You only ever see the top of the top. This is like you, you've got effectively the Instagram model uh, equivalent happening on LinkedIn, right? You've got your LinkedIn data science models, right? Uh, and it's it's intimidating, it's not easy, and you like cut out the noise, man. Like for your own personal like self. self-worth and you just sanity cut out the noise focus on and this is why that why is really important i don't care that someone else has become the genius in graph neural networks because that doesn't help me teach robots to see that's my grounding feature right this is why it's not just about what are the techniques i'd like to work with it's not about the tool it's about the end goal right if you have that vision in mind i i keep zeroing back to that so i don't care if i don't post on linkedin i don't care if what i've learned is something so dumb that any infrastructure or cloud architect would sit there going man this guy's dumb at his job right because i know 10 other things that they don't know that regard to serving on robots and that's my mission why are we measuring ourselves to what other people are posting so so i look i hear what you're saying don't worry about what other people are posting right in terms of oh they're moving ahead they're moving so fast am i missing out this fomo figure out why you want to do it and then cut the shortcuts don't don't waste your time learning stuff that other people say is important right like yeah do you think it's important to like have like literal blackout periods on social media um so like when i was doing um I mean, when I when I was doing like the data science boot camp like that that is sort of kind of the nice thing about structured environments is that part of what they do for you is they kind of they sort of give you that that sort of goal post like they give you that thing to like that outcome to measure yourself against um because like sometimes self learning is a little bit hard uh you have to kind of like set your like you have to kind of 
know and set your own milestones. And I feel like it's hard to do that if you haven't already gone through that path already. Um, but for me personally, like I'm very, very obsessive about planning everything. Like it's actually kind of destructive sometimes, like how much of my life I live in spreadsheets, but it can kind of also help too when there's a lot of that. So something that does help for, I think LinkedIn it is to understand kind of like the landscape of like who is posting and what, and why are people posting there? Um, so number one, people are posting because personal brand, it does help, um, you know, it, it, it helps set the narrative for recruiters and all that. Um, there is some abs talk going, I'm missing out. Um, you know, so, so that's one reason why people post it's, it's personal brand. Um, you know, there's, there are a lot of people who have like a lot of accomplishments that don't post. And there are people like me who have like, you know, who don't really accomplish much. And we just talk a lot. Um, you know, the second like group that you see is a lot of like vendors and, you know, a lot of creators and all that who are kind of selling products and, you know, all that, like there's a couple of us on here, right? It, it is what it is. We all got to make a living. Um, you know, the third part is also, it's potentially people like around you also who are like searching for jobs and it is hyper competitive. So I do think sometimes it, um, what really helps is, okay, so two pieces of advice I hear given to new people that I really think is BS. Number one, um, follow a bunch of like people and newsletters and influencers and all that. Um, I actually think that's a terrible advice when you're new. Like, don't do that. Um, there might be like one or two newsletters I, I would almost recommend to a new person mainly because like there's this one newsletter where all they do is they list three blog posts, three projects, and three papers. That's it. And they send weekly. Like, I think that is very consumable for a new person, but anything more is really bad. So I actually would not even do that. Like, so if as a new person, if you're like getting into trying to job search and you're actively, for example, trying to build on your skills and your portfolio, I would just cut out a lot of that stuff. Like do like social media blackouts. Um, the second part um, is like, you should work on projects, but you see a lot of people like their GitHub repos, like they have like all these like, like millions of repos and code gists. So I found out that like what some people apparently will do is they will just like fork something, they'll make a little change and then they'll call that a project or they'll just do collections of little code snippets, right? Like that's, you know, a lot of that's like vanity metrics. Hiring managers, when they do look for portfolios, they are, out, they're actually okay with fewer projects that are just really well done. Like they really are. Um, I have, there's a few students like who the, the mentoring program, like I, I, maybe I can go track down their projects, but um, they literally have like two or three repos. Um, they're adding more, but it's just really well done projects. Um, you know, so there's also that where it's like, you could kind of drive yourself nuts by like trying to do so much and compete on the numbers game. So where you can compete is quality. It's quality and it's uh, putting on your own unique spin. Um, the third, the, the thing that, I, okay, so the third, third, third thing that like the advice is given to new people that I don't really love is they say reproduce papers. If you're going to data science machine, honestly, don't do that. <laughs> like, unless you're going into like a research area, um, you know, I wouldn't really do that. Um, it's nice, but the reality is that like, for one thing, we do want more papers to have code attached. That that's the real thing, right? Papers with code. Um, so if you are interested, like you can take a look at that website. But what I would actually think, for example, that is a little bit more valuable for a data scientist um, that I don't see in a lot of data science, frankly, is improving like sort of basic software engineering skills. 
Um, that's actually like really, really powerful. And so a lot of times what's probably better is to like find a good blog post or write up of a project someone did um, and then really kind of go through it and reconstruct and like diagnose or, you know, dissect every the decisions they made to essentially get like a, a model up and then to get it sort of like, how did they, how did they share the model with people? It could either be through like Flask, it could be through um, Streamlit, it could be through whatever. Um, and like, how well does the model run? Like if you download and pip install it on your laptop and it doesn't work, then I would argue that's not a successful project, right? Like a successful project, hypothetically, if you do everything well, you know, you set up your virtual environment, you pip install or whatever, um, it, it should work, um, you know? So, but that's more what I would kind of try to focus on, like really cut all that noise, don't do all the following, all the influencer stuff, like really restrict kind of your work and learning to something that's like well encapsulated and high quality, um, you know, and then eventually when you get there, like share your learnings on LinkedIn. It's, it's kind of only scary if you sort of feel like LinkedIn is being done to you. But if you are a participant in LinkedIn, if you kind of build up that community around yourself, um, it, it can be a much more welcoming place. So that's, I know. A lot of words. See what I say? I talk a lot and no skills at that. There's no meat. There's no meat in my bite, but, uh, or my bark. There's no bite in my bark, whatever. Um, you know, but that's, you know, what I would say like for, for new people. I do think there's a lot of advice. There's a lot of noise out there that honestly, I think is just really not great if you're new and you're trying to pivot. Um, you know, but quality, quality is never a bad thing, especially in a very crowded field. Thank you. Thank you for the perspective. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Sarala, did, did you, did we answer your question then uh, kind of trying to figure out these next steps for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, I got a very good perspective on what I'm looking at right now. Maybe, you know, I'll pick a few points from this and start, uh, you know, uh, building up the roadmap to where I want to be eventually. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Amazing. Um, awesome. So, uh, well, I, we might have, uh, time for two more questions, but our next question is Gina um, regarding some resume work. So going back to the kind of like a job search and LinkedIn kind of thing. Yeah, thanks. So um, speaking of advice and a lot of noise out there, um, one thing, I mean, obviously there's tons of resume advice and there's resume advice that might go for more of a project manager, program manager outside of data science for just for one example. And then there's um, data science resumes or software engineering, et cetera. Um, one question I had is, so a while back, some years ago, it was said that you shouldn't do any formatting on your resume. For example, any boxes, any graphic elements, things like that, columns, et cetera, because it won't get through the applicant tracking systems. Um, so, I have one question around that um, to start with. And, you know, I've heard various things. It seems like you should have a skill section, but I've even heard some say, don't even put that in there, but try to capture, you know, if you worked with SQL or pan, you know, pandas, Python, all the rest, capture that in your like a technical projects section. So I'd love to hear people's thoughts basically about getting through that ATS um, 
obviously the best thing to do is to try to connect with people who are hiring, et cetera. Um, but, and also this is, um, I'm thinking US focused, you know, I don't know how things are in other countries as far as what is expected from resumes, but here it feels like, you know, one page max, unless you're extremely experienced in this particular field. Um, and also, you know, oh, make it visually interesting. Well, that's nice. But if it doesn't get through an applicant tracking system, then I don't know that anybody sees it unless you actually are talking directly to a recruiter who walks it over to a hiring manager, et cetera. So love to hear your thoughts on that. So let's go with uh, Matt first. Uh, yeah, so I've probably helped thousands of students with resumes. Um, like, and I've been through the song and dance a lot. Like whenever you give advice, like everyone disagrees or agrees or, you know, like, should it be one page? Should it be two page? What should this be? What should that be? Like a, a lot of that really comes down to style and how you want to preference yourself. And like, you really want to pick something and lean into it. You know, like you, like no matter what you do, you're going to impress some people and you're not going to impress other people. And so I generally like I pick what I think will impress the maximum amount of people. Right. And so like, so I generally always keep my resume to one page, um, even though I, could definitely do two, three, four pages, you know, but uh, I keep it a one page because in my mind, like people just scan them really quickly. And then like, really it comes down to the content, right? And so like, I often tell people throughout the skill section, uh, like you were saying, but that's because, you know, like it all comes down to like, if you have amazing work experience, you want to highlight that and you don't want it to be buried behind the skill section that's just taking up space. You know, obviously, if you were able to do this amazing project, you, you obviously had to know the skills to do it. You know, you probably, you know, if you deploy the GPT-3 model that did this, you know, great thing. Yeah, you got to know Python, you got to know APIs, you got to know a bunch of these skills so like it's kind of already inherent but um like really the only reason the skill section is in there is so that way you can like bombard you know these you know these automated systems that just try to like filter you out automatically so like that way they can automatically know the the words you're looking for but like you can figure out like those automated systems aren't smart like if you want to know how they work, they just take the job description, they take your resume, and they word compare. And if, if you have more words that match and meet a certain threshold, like 10% or whatever it is, then you're golden. So like, if you want to get past an automated system, all you have to do is look at the job description and then just throw those words into your resume and then you're good. And then once someone sees it, then they're going to really care about. And so like, you, in my opinion, you should always write your resume so that way when a person sees it, they're impressed, not when some computer system sees it. Like you should never care about the computer system. In my opinion, if you get filtered out at that level, then you weren't a good fit for that company anyways. Anyways, 
So, so, so those are some of my strong opinions, but that I say lean into and you don't have to agree or anything, but you know, those are just some insights. So follow-up is simply, so yeah. And I've heard this many places as well. Um, but yeah, it's been really impressed upon me and I've actually been working with a coach who's been doing this. She's a wizard at stuff like this and she's great in all kinds of other ways. But um, getting those matches, so if a job description calls for, let's say TensorFlow, which I've used in a project, and you know, Scikit-Learn and Pandas and Python and uh, Keras, uh, sort of TensorFlow-ish, et cetera, et cetera, then I wanna make sure that those show up in my project description somewhere. So if I don't have that skills section, then I wanna at least make sure that I'm getting not just those words, but other words, right, from the job description, similar kinds of words that will help it get through the system and or if it goes in front of a recruiter, it makes it real easy for them in a quick scan to see, um, you know, to kind of go, oh, I can see that this person, like even if it's words that aren't technical skills, but it's kind of wording things in a similar way, you know, that just makes that comparison easy. Would would you ag- agree with that? Because on the one hand, you're saying, you know, write it for a person. And there's the thought that uh, someone mentioned, maybe it was you matches saying, if you've done these projects, it's kind of implied that you know these skills or you have these abilities. And yet you're trying to get through that ATS, then the, the, like you said, the computer isn't going to know that. Um, so just clarifying on that. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you're trying to get through, right? Like if, if you're trying to avoid the system altogether, like if you have a referral, you're probably going to ignore that whole ETS system altogether, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so then, yeah, just, just optimize it for how you write it. But if, you, if you're applying to some, some big company and you don't necessarily have an in and like, uh, you know, other things like that, then yeah, like you, you, you do need to get past that ETS system and go through... And kind of maybe, you know, take the job description, sprinkle in some of the keywords in into there. But uh, you know, ultimately, like a well-written resume, like you'll notice, oh, I already have all these right words in there. Um, okay. Oh, and one other thing, formatting. What do you know about like literally, you know, back in the day, it was like if you have a line in there, if you have like a gray box, you know, a text box of some kind that can get filtered out or even just which format I've heard people say use PDF only. And then I've heard people say, you know, use a doc, you know, Microsoft doc. And if it doesn't say in the application system, which sometimes it does not, then, you know, I mean, those are just, these are like little silly technical things, but it kind of would suck if you are applying for something and putting some effort into it. And then you just get screened out and you don't even necessarily hear back or know why. Yeah, so the format, like, you'll know <laughs> when, when you go and apply, right? Like, if all you have to do is upload your, your resume as a PDF, and, and that's it, like, then you know that they're using some system that's extracting the information out of your, out of your PDF. And so then your format, maybe you might want to do a more simple format because because uh, then you don't have to worry about whatever system is, is screwing up extracting that information out. Um, however, like still today, like they ask for your resume and then they ask you to fill out the form. 
Um, and, and this happens a lot and people always complain about it, but like, if that's the system you see, then you know that you're good. You can upload a, a, a resume that's very visually appealing, that has whatever format you want, because you're gonna be copying and pasting all this information over into a system that will then be able to extract it, right? And so you, you just kind of got to know what system you're dealing with. And a lot of those systems that are extracting the information out of resumes are getting a lot better. Um, and so it, it's always pros and cons, right? But like, ultimately, like, you always want to try to get around and like, you can always like, if, if you can reach out to a recruiter and ask them about the system, mm -hmm. like, they're always happy to help you, right? Like, like, if you're an amazing, if you're an amazing candidate, like no one wants to lose you because some system filtered you out. Right? Yeah. That's what, it, yeah. In fact, I was advising somebody on that the other day, but it was specific to uh, where I had worked before UC Davis, which Mark knows well, um, <laughs> alma mater, right? Uh, yeah, not, you know, I hear these stories about a resume goes through shared services. And in fact, somebody had reached out to, you know, the place where I used to work and they said, definitely apply. And then they got filtered out right away and nobody was happy about that. And in fact, it was, I think, the HR people who were like, oh, we didn't see this person's resume. We got to get in touch with them or get in touch with shared services to get them to send it. So that is, and this is just like something I've, you know, kind of picked up on. And I think it might be helpful for others who are listening or who tune in later to, you know, kind of plus one that um, and say, you're helping to solve someone else's problem. And if you reach out to them, that helps a lot. And also um, some notes that Makiko was saying in the, in the chat about, you know, she has an ATS resume and an in-person resume, but she says she often uses the, um, the ATS resume because it's real clean and, you know, uh, and sharp and to the point. And as somebody who has been known for wordiness in my past, I've come to also appreciate like signal to noise ratio if you maximize the, you know, the quality of the shorter resume, that one pager or anything you write, then it's gonna have more impact than if people kind of have to wade through uh, a bunch of stuff. So yeah, um, thank you for that. Thanks so much, Matt. And then uh, we're, we're coming up on time. So we got time for one more comment. So uh, Saab, uh, what do you have to, to share? Yeah, um, I mean, I kind of, move the other way in terms of skills versus uh experience right but essentially it depends on on you if your skills are the things that are going to get you the job put the emphasis on the skills if it's the experience that's going to get you the job put the emphasis on the experience right if you don't have the experience put the emphasis on the skills and projects and and flip it around when once you do have the experience it doesn't they're not going to ask you whether you know pytorch or tensorflow if you worked for 10 years as a senior data scientist i don't think they can uh really ask you either way, right? So so focus on your strength. That's the first thing to know is what is your selling point? Is it the skills or is it the experience? The second thing is who are you applying to? Is it a large company that's actually gonna use one of those ATR systems or ATS systems? Or is it like a, a 10 man group? Are they getting thousands of applicants or are they getting 20 to 50 applicants, right? If they're getting 20 to 50 applicants, they're not gonna waste their time setting up a big ATS system, they're probably going to go through each one anyway, right? Um, if they've got thousands of applicants, totally agree. 
you got to be careful what you send through. Just whatever tool you do use, make sure that it is readable from it. Like I know that using funky fonts is usually where PDFs sometimes encode things in a weird way. I know Canva does a few things with their with their fonts to, you know, there's some of their proprietary fonts become hard to read. I found one ATS system reads my name backwards, but let's, I've, I've been in that weird situation that I've had a HR uh, recruiter reach out to me saying, hey, um, your resume broke our ATR system, but we really liked your resume. Let's have a chat, right? Which is the most bizarre experience I, I can ever like, comment on. But That's a new strategy. You break the ATS <laughs> and then someone has to look at it. Like, you know, it clogs, it's like a paper jam, so to speak. R -R -R. I wouldn't, it's not my highly recommended strategy, but ju just know one thing, like, yes, I'm a believer in visual resumes, right? It helps a lot, but essentially I'm throwing back all the time to some of the stuff Vince said on one of his videos is your resume is the thing that you spend a lot of time creating, but people spend very little time reading. So how do you get the minimum effort to get the resume that matches the a hundred different jobs that you're trying to do value your time, man. You don't want to spend four hours writing a resume. Um, so sometimes keeping it simple is good. Or once you have a visual template and an ATR template, just update it and move on. Don't reinvent the visual every single time. I spent 22 versions in 2019, which I think 20 of them were a waste of my time. So don't do what I did. Awesome. Well, uh, we're, we're at time now. Uh, again, Thank you so much for, for everyone uh, showing up and have, sharing this awesome conversation. And big shout out to Harpreet for trusting me with uh, hosting your, your show. I'm so excited to uh, chat with y'all nerd out about data. Um, you know, he has his phrase, the one life thing. I, I'm bad at memorizing things. So like, I'm, I'm just going to butcher it. But I will leave with this is that, you know, I live by, you know, and every seat is a teacher and every seat is a student. And we're all learning from each other. And everyone has the opportunity to teach someone else. So um, I feel that every time I show up here and um, I really love uh, hanging out with you all these Fridays, uh, really helped out my career and also hope that your careers have uh, moved forward as well from being here. All right. Uh, have a good weekend, everyone. See ya.